This episode of Bet the Process is sponsored by Hull Tactical. It's our first time being sponsored by anybody, Jeff. How do you feel about it? I'm pretty excited just because it's a really relevant and important sponsor. Jeff, do you play the markets? I don't really. I don't try to. I have all my stuff in very passive accounts. I mean, we've all heard that market timing is kind of a fool's errand, right? I mean, that's what I've always heard. That's what I've heard too. But but Hull Tactical actually doesn't believe that. Hull Tactical says that there are edges to be found via market timing. Um, they're an independently, privately owned firm focused on quantitative asset management. Their approach to investing is rooted in the recent explosion of data, combining macro and technical indicators to realize a risk return profile superior to a buy and hold strategy. Hull believes market timing is not only possible, Jeff, but necessary to adapt to a changing investing environment and provide long-term appreciation regardless of the direction of the broader market. For more information on Hull Tactical, you can go to hulltactical.com and you can also listen to an interview with the CEO, Petra Bakasova, which will run at the end of each episode. You can hear little tidbits of wisdom from her. On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I talk to a real college football expert. Bill Connolly from ESPN. We also talk a little bit about rule changes in college and their impact. We talk a little bit about the simplicity of modeling versus overcomplicating things. And we spend way too much time, like everyone else in the world, talking about Colorado. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. It's Rufus's last night at the Yale Club, a third-tier Ivy League school has a club. Good for them. No, you're not. No, hey, it's, it's, just, it's, it's my last night before I can actually sleep in my new place. It's exciting. It's really it exciting. It, what it means is that I have a mattress now, and I will have sheets and a comforter tomorrow. So, mm. you know, I'm basically all furnished, huh? Um, yeah, you are furnished. Uh, that's Steve all you Job need. Style. You need a place that's, to sleep on. That's, yeah, that's, that's all you need. Theoretically, then you don't need a house, right? Like you could just have a studio apartment. You don't. I mean, how many square foot is your new house? It's not a house. It's a condo. It's an apartment. Same thing. What? How big is your condo? Twelve hundred square feet. Big. Bigger than where I'm living right now with uh, you have two a family kids and a wife. So yeah, no, I definitely don't need all that space. But I don't know. For a big boy purchase, it's fairly small in terms of size, but it's just in a great location. I love it. I, I love my terrace, my terraces, I should say. Great neighborhood. It's just, okay. there's a lot to to do in terms of decorating. I'm, I'm literally, I'm, I'm starting fresh, Jeff. I'm not using anything that I've had from any previous places. So there's, yeah, it's a little overwhelming. Are you going to hire exciting. a designer? Yes, I have. Okay. I love it. Yes. Yeah. You really are all grows up. I know. All grows up. Okay, so let's talk about college football. Um, did you watch the games this week? I didn't watch much, but I watched snippets. 
did you have any uh, thoughts from this week? Obviously, the the talk of the town is Dion Sanders and Coach Prime, Coach Prime and his his uh, you know the the interesting thing about that game is I think a lot of people that I know were on TCU and the under in that game, and neither came through. Um, the public money I think was on. Colorado and and obviously we talk about public money all the time but what I'm more interested in is do you think sight unseen right now knowing you know without running any like analytics but just kind of like understanding how markets react and what 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 you would think as a person the uh buffs minus three against Nebraska this week who do you take what was that line? What was the look ahead a week ago? I think it was Nebraska minus seven. Okay, so a 10-point swing. Sight unseen, I think you have to take Nebraska there and assume that the market probably overreacted without having any sort of grasp of what the number should be. That would be my inclination. It's funny because I think the statistics, the numbers people are going to have more trouble and they're probably going to be too low on Colorado early because they are very unique in the fact that it's a completely new roster. It's the USC of last year, but there was just so much uncertainty going, going into the season for them. I mean, cause you have people coming from division two or F whatever it is. Was it division F- two or FCS? FCS. FCS. Yeah. FCS. Right. Um, and so there were people that said that Colorado had like the worst talent in of FBS teams. And there were people that thought Colorado actually could be good. So uh, I think we learned a lot from week one and and you need to adjust more than you would for a week for a typical team because we have so much uncertainty surrounding our prior. It still feels like 10 points has to be too much. That's that's just me split. What you, what you just said contradicted what you said, essentially. Yeah, you, I said the quantitative systems are going to have trouble with, with something like this. But when they make a... When they make a you know a, a, a line of this type, right? Uh, They're trying to balance what the sh- you know demand. But, but my point is, I'm not saying quantitative systems are all necessarily sharp. Okay, so you're saying I'm saying a strictly numbers like I wonder I could look and see what ESPN's FPI has. I'm curious how much they adjusted Colorado, but I feel like they probably underadjusted. Just like Again. I think Massey Peabody would have underadjusted. Because we're not right, built but again, for that, that level. That would... We're not. It's an outlier. I think Colorado is an outlier in terms of the amount of uncertainty going into the season. Again, so I 100% agree with everything you're saying. Mm-hmm. But don't agree with is then your statement that you think that this adjustment in the line, meaning like Nebraska plus three is the thing you would play if you had to play one side or the other without knowing anything besides just this, what we've discussed. Yeah, I mean, I would say normally the market can overreact at times to one game, to the first game of the season. And so the books are certainly anticipating, I mean, when they put up an opener, they're anticipating that there's going to be a lot of money coming in on Colorado because people are going to react very strongly to what they saw. And so like everything points to, in that case, um, I guess a line that isn't really made with the sharp like quant systems in mind as the people they're scared of. Okay. But isn't that usually what they're scared of when they make a line? 
they're scared of sharp betters. That doesn't mean people with just they didn't they don't want to get they don't want to get run they don't want to get run over on Colorado. Essentially. Maybe I should I, I I was speaking from the perspective of a system like Massey Peabody, which would find this difficult. Not not necessarily somebody who's much sharper and not putting out something with a specific methodology. You know, people that can actually put their finger on the you know button lever whatever and and make adjustments in a way that that isn't strictly um you know algorithmic okay i don't think we got a good answer on this it's interesting i mean it's a good discussion but i don't know if there's it's like maybe there isn't an answer because ultimately like there are reasons why they would there are reasons why you could say this was an over adjustment and there are reasons why you could say that this is an under adjustment and in both cases, there there there's a reasonable approach to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was giving the argument why I thought that it could be an under adjustment with a lot of systems, but again, this is such a public situation, a public team in Colorado that you know I think you're you're gonna. I mean, that the psychology of that is still gonna make it a huge, huge move and. I mean, how much uncertainty did you have to have in your Colorado prior to justify a 10-point swing? A lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you have well, to basically come in saying, I know nothing about this team. They could be Georgia or they could be UMass. They're probably not Georgia. Right, but I'm saying like to justify a 10-point move, you kind of almost need a, a, a very uninformed prior. What I'm kind of interested to see as the season plays out is, was this more of a a knock on TCU than necessarily a nod towards Colorado? I mean, obviously Colorado is, it it seems like it's pretty clear that they're probably better than what people thought they were. Oh, clearly. But from, from a TCU perspective, and I went 0 for 5 on the Kornheiser show picking college football games, so that's not so great. But I did talk about this idea of like TCU being a uh, a team that you know even though they lost in the you know champ the the finals last year there's a world where you could say that that they're not an elite team at all right they're essentially a team that kind of got in there in sort of a like lucky way played out in a you know a semifinals game which win with you know two defensive touchdowns and you know um and then got killed by Georgia. And, you know, maybe there's a world where they're just not, you know, they're not, they're not that much better than a yeah. Colorado. I mean, they're not much better than a Nebraska, let's say. And we were talking about this at the end of last season. We didn't think TCU was a great football team. They were much worse than the record, but they won the games that they had. They, they won all their games. Well, until they yeah. didn't. I mean, again, like obvious, but we talked about the point spread and we talked about yep. like how many other teams would have been favored over them that, you know, didn't make the playoffs and on and on. So anyways, interesting. I, I think just... you make a good point though. On, and I wonder what the adjustment to TCU was. Do you have that in front of you? I do not. But I'll say the thing that's most impressive to me with Colorado's performance is in doing it week one is just how little time they have Um to essentially build a culture, build a team, a cohesive unit, starting from scratch. I mean, I it's one of these situations where you'd expect Colorado to get better as the season progresses because it takes time to build a program. But and and that's why the week one result is so surprising to me. Yeah. 
and so impressive. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, the clock. What do you think about the clock? I know I, I didn't watch any football games straight through. And if there were commercials, I flipped to a different game. So I know there's a lot of complaints about the fact that the games are just as long and it's just more commercial time. But clearly the clock the clock has had an impact. And I think the impact was pretty predictable. I, I don't understand why it's... I mean, I, I feel like it's a fairly straightforward thing to to predict. Well, how would you predict it? I mean, so what? here's... We have fewer plays. If you want to figure out how many fewer plays... Um, what you need to do is you figure out how often you have first downs that are outside of two minutes where the player does not go out of bounds. Right. And mm -hmm. in essence, and then how long does it take them to normal normally to move the chains slash spot the ball? And it's very inconsistent from team to team and game to game clearly. Um, but essentially what is that average amount of time that the clock is stopped? And so, First downs in that situation, time's average amount of time clock has stopped. And then have you done any work on this yet? I mean, you can, uh, like, I haven't, I don't know what the amount of time it stopped on average is. I've kind of spitballed just, you know, because I, I'm not betting college football sides, totals, full game stuff yet. So for me, it was more just of a, more of a thought exercise. But if you figure that out, I, I I feel like it's fairly straightforward. You figure out how much time is getting taken away and then how many seconds per per play. And then I think my back of the envelope calculations before the season were that it would be about eight to 12 fewer plays per game. But that was just making some estimate off, out of my ass on how long they actually stopped the clock after first down on average. How does that translate to points, you think? Um, Now that, right, that's where... That's where it gets a little trickier. You could look at something like, um, you know, points per play on average, and kind. Of, but I feel like there could be, there's probably some nonlinearities there. Yeah. But if, but you, but at it, its most basic, what you could do is essentially adjust by saying, if there are five percent fewer plays, there'll be five percent fewer points. Yeah. I think that's you're not going to be that wrong, and I'm sure someone will correct me. Do you think there's something to be gained for? understanding um so there's like pace there's like tempo right and then there's because what and I, I think you're right like this is like a classic you know in, in blackjack right the old idea was that we did the high low system which was like the simplest system and there were a lot of people that did much more complicated systems like when we had blair hall on last week we talked a little bit about how from paul tactical shout out to the sponsor we talked about um the whole idea of um, you know, the, the systems that he used that were more complicated, but didn't give like a huge amount of gain in terms of EV. And so um, when I think a little bit about this problem and understanding what I'm kind of interested in is like these teams that used to play super fast, like, especially in the first halves, right. Where you would first down, you get up on the, like, and, and it, so here's maybe, maybe the thing, like these super high scoring offenses, that get first downs quite a bit and just kind of march down the field. Is there more of an impact on them than there is necessarily in the first half or yes, something? There should be more, there should be a greater impact on them because they get more first downs per game. Right. Not, but I think the impact per first down should be the same in terms of time because they're not, unless they're snapping the ball in the time that before the clock would have started. But the whole idea is, 
the chains move, you can't snap the ball until that is done. And then, so basically I don't think they're not snapping it within that, since they can't snap it within that time period, there's still, there's going to be approximately 10 seconds, whatever it is, five to 10. I don't know what that number is where the clock is running and it would have been stopped. And so multiply that by how many first downs. And so, yes, clearly it's going to affect on a per play basis. It's going to affect, it's going to affect the faster, faster teams that get more first downs more. Yeah. I think it's going to have less of an impact in the second halves when teams are intentionally playing slow. Okay. Why? Makes sense. I mean, because no, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, because I guess the play clock starts no matter what, right? Yes. Does the play clock start, but the game clock doesn't start. So they only have a certain amount of time anyway. So it won't, it won't, I take it back. I was trying to overcomplicate this thinking about it before I was, and then I was like, wait, no, it's actually really simple. It's like the clock stops for this amount of time after each first down. Normally it's not going to stop. Yeah. Each first down, it's not going to affect a faster team or a slower team differently per first down. Yeah. Uh, did you have a tilted moment of the week? Probably not. Cause you didn't really, did you have a personal tilted moment? Um, no, I, I don't think I did. I'm trying to be less focused on tilty things. Yeah, as you should. Although, oh, we went to the me and my um my brother and sister and brother-in-law and a few friends went to the Blue Hill Fair, which is famous uh has been made famous by the book Charlotte's Web. Did you ever read that growing up, Jeff? I did. I can't remember it very well though. Yeah. It's the first time I've been with, since um, in high school. With, is that the one with Tigger? No, no, that's Winnie the Pig. No, this is Will the the pig Wilbur and the spider yeah. named Templeton. Yeah. Yeah. It's in Blue Hill, Maine. And so it was it was interesting to be back there for the first time since I was in high school. It feels much more depressing. Uh, but, I think but most people some people rode the tilt a whirl. Got it. So that's it my tilt. It took a little moment. while to get to the point. Yes, it did. Um the tilted moment for me and for I think some people were when uh Penn State ran that ball in with six seconds left to go. And a classic reminder of college and games being completely random. So they were up, they were up by I think 18 or something like that. And seven, 16. And they had a second and goal at the six yard line with, they snapped the ball with six seconds left and they ran it in. <laughs> yeah. Variance baby. That was, that was a uh, point spread and over winner. If you were, on the over and Penn state. So if you're on the other side of that, that is the happiest moment of your life. Yeah. Um, I had like Jeff, I had so little action. I basically, I put in some derivatives on Saturday, but most of the week was spent on deep dive and accounting stuff. And so I, I come you know, out of a it. tilted moment with accounting. Like, was it when you kept texting everyone in our Calcutta to ask about uh, a $2,000 um, transaction? It was, it was honestly, when I just embraced the fact that it was going to be really difficult and if I just kept working at it, I was going to get to the bottom of everything. Um, that's when, you know, I resigned myself to it. And then it it's decluttered my headspace big time, just knowing that everything is figured out and, and straight. And hopefully things never get wonky from here again. Appreciate that. So now we're going to talk a little bit about our market timing moment of the week. And mine comes from college. Um, last night's game was Clemson versus Duke. And I think Clemson was sort of minus 13 most of the week. And then right before kickoff, I think widely went to minus 12, which is like a reasonable move at that point. 
If you were, again, sight unseen, how would you read into that move? And, you know, we talked a little bit about how you don't want to bet into college after, you know, like once it's that the mature market's not mature, but how would you have interpreted that move? Um, it could have been an information thing. Uh, it could have been big money coming in, but there are bettors that are waiting until close to post to, to get down large, large amounts of money. So maybe, maybe it was Billy Walters. Would you have interpreted that to be a sharp move or a not sharp move or neither? You know, sight unseen, I would say that the closing market is more efficient than any other time before it generally, but how, how far before the game began was this move? I think it was, I, I mean, I, I don't know when widely it happened, but it was certainly, it was certainly in the hour before, I think. You know, I I honestly couldn't answer it. It's it it's like asking me if um if global warming is why it's hot today. You know, I could say that it, on it's more likely to be a sharp move than to not be a sharp move, probably. There you go. But I don't know. We're gonna now welcome in Bill Connolly um, from ESPN, and we're gonna talk a little college football. So we'll talk to you guys all again on the other side, where we'll actually have some picks of the week. We now welcome in to the Bet the Process podcast, Bill Connolly. And what's exciting, again, whenever we have a guest on that actually knows the names of players, we're pretty excited because Rufus only knows numbers, and I don't really know anything about sports anymore. So, Bill, thank you for joining <laughs> us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? We have seven listeners, and typically anywhere from three to four of them are not familiar with our guests when they join, so we'd like to have... <laughs> Uh, a little bit of dialogue about um, who you are, how you got into what you're doing and, and what you do. Well, hello to all seven. Um, so my, this is a, a funny story. I guess we all have funny stories, but basically in around 2007, um, you know, I'm, I'm working for the, for the state of Missouri. I want to start a Mizzou blog uh, to talk with my friends basically about Mizzou. And over the summer, I'm thinking, you know, this is a long off season. There's nothing to write about. Um, I really love baseball stats. I hate baseball. I don't like any, you know, I don't like watching baseball at all. I just really like the stats. So what exists for football? I've never, I, I Googled advanced football stats basically. And for college, there was, you know, Google just kind of shrugged its shoulders. There was nothing in existence really for college football at that point. Um, so I started taking some of my favorite base baseball measures and trying to apply, like, you know, entering football play by play into spreadsheets and, and applying some of the stuff to see what would happen. I ended up writing for football outsiders about a year later in, in 2008. Um, and then in 2011, because that Mizzou blog had been picked up uh, through the SB nation network, I started writing uh, full-time for SB nation at that point. So um, it just, it was this slow trickle of blogging and blogging and stats and Mizzou and all these other things. And then in 2019, uh, got, made the move to ESPN. Cool. And, and then you on ESPN are, are sort of known as the analytics guru on the college side, right? And you develop SP plus everyone, everyone's got like a, their own analytics acronym system, right? <laughs> have you guys, the, have you, the two of you guys ever, compared notes on SB plus and Massey Peabody. I'm sure you have. And what have you come up with? Kate and I will, we'll just kind of hint at stuff like, Oh, well, I kind of, we kind of look at that differently or, and you know, whatever. And we're always super, super vague about it. But I can say that my system basically started from, I mentioned baseball measures. I, I wanted an OPS for baseball. So I came up with 
success rate. Uh, I stole that from Football Outsiders and kind of adjusted it for college, um, which is basically how frequently you're getting 50% of yardage on first down, 70% on second, 100% on third and fourth. And then my my initial stab at a points per play explosiveness kind of measure. So there's your S and your P. Um, success rate and points per play. Used to be an ampersand in between them. And then when I went to ESPN, Standard & Poor, uh, said, why don't you get rid of that ampersand? Um, and so I did. And um, you got lawyers there, huh? I still call it the S and P plus, but everybody uh, on radio, people on Twitter will mention it. And I, I'm just kind of like, I just kind of back off. Like I'm just going to uh, not acknowledge that, but you know. we'll get in legal trouble. Not you. <laughs> there you go. See, I have not said those specific, uh, that, well, no, I did say S and P words together. I, damn it. Um, but no, that, so that was, that was the genesis of it. And and for the last 15 years, I've just been tinkering nonstop with better ways to adjust for opponents, which is obviously an enormous deal in college sports with, with the talent levels being as different as they are. Um, I think I've got a pretty good read on that. Now, of course, you know, preseason projections are completely altered by the fact that the way everybody builds a roster completely changed two years ago. So um, it's kind of nonstop tinkering in that regard. But the genesis of it was that sustainability aspect, the efficiency and explosiveness and all those kinds of things. I was going to actually ask, that's a, that's a great segue. I was going to ask <laughs> how you actually have handled the transition to, you know, transfer portal galore and, and you know, wholesale roster changes well not well enough apparently like there were basically like five games sp plus completely whiffed on last week and i think three of them involved teams with super heavy transfer loads texas state colorado and colorado uh and one other one that in that group as well and so it's hard it's a moving target too because you know heading into last season you know usc signed 20 transfers including some genuine blue chip guys who are going who are clearly going to be immediate stars and all the ways that i had built in to kind of handle um talent level or you know talent estimates and and returning production it worked pretty well when the most teams were signing was like six transfers but heading into last year i i knew i was not doing it right and i knew that USC was going to be underrated. LSU was probably going to be underrated, but I just didn't have any data for to, to know how to handle that. And after a year of data, I think I've got a pretty good handle on how to handle the 20 transfer teams. So Colorado goes out and signs 50. Um, and, and, and it it's there, Colorado still in the eighties, they were in the hundred twenties last year. And so even though they were projected to improve by more than anybody else, they were still only in the eighties and, and the offense is rising, but it's going to take a while to figure that out. And I don't know, Moving forward, I don't know. I don't have a feel for the the best way to handle it, but yeah, I mean, you've <laughs> at at the pro level, you can kind of create a player level model to a certain degree, at least. In college, I have no idea where to even start with that. There's just so many players and so many types of players, and 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 we'll see exactly how that goes. Jeff and I were actually talking a little bit about, or maybe a lot about Colorado before you came on, and and how they're kind of a real sort of historical outlier, I would say, in terms of just the uncertainty surrounding their prior. Yeah. <clears throat> and so I kind of posited that, I mean, systems like Massey Peabody are going to have a huge problem handling that. I'm guessing yeah. you're, you're having the same thing. Are there any well, other... Can I, can I ask him the question that I asked you, which is sort of right now, sight unseen, the line pops three for them this week against um, Nebraska what are you betting or where do you think the value is? It's one of those, like, until they stop rising, I feel weird picking against Colorado, but my numbers still say have Nebraska favored because again, Colorado is so far behind. I do think 
there's film now. Like, I, I don't want to overreact to one game and just assume Colorado's awesome because, A, there is film and Nebraska's defense played almost as well as Colorado's offense played last week. And also, Colorado's defense was terrible last week. Uh, those trans- The 50 transfers they signed, only like five of them actually did anything uh, against TCU. It was just they were the five best players on the field and um, or four transfers and a freshman. So I don't want to overreact. I assume it's they're still going to rise in the rankings for a while and they should be favored by, you know, three to five in this game. Not a heavy lane by any means, but... Uh, the, the defense is, isn't is any better than last year's so far. And so they might not rise as much as people think. Are you able, are you, do you treat the one game just the same as you would treat one game for any other team? Well, that's something I might have to look at moving forward. Like the teams with heavy potential volatility, you adjust quickly because I mean, at this point it's still, yeah, like 90% something uh, preseason projections. And Maybe for the for a Georgia who took on like two transfers um, and has heavy culture and, and continuity and all that stuff, maybe that's fine for them. But yeah, maybe there I need to fiddle with that part of it and basically just lean on current year's results faster if you've got uh, if you've got such a new roster. So that that is something to look into. But for now, I'm still using it as a, as I've used it in previous years. Well, I think in the past, I mean, as you said, you, you had teams with like six transfers and that was considered a lot and so you didn't have these like sort of wholesale changes and i mean you could argue that there's more uncertainty if you have a new coach yeah um bring in a new culture and things like that but but not to the like i feel like you could at least with Vassy people we could get away with with having you know each week be worth the same for each team relative yep. to the prior and now it feels like with you know <laughs> usc last year and colorado this year like yeah maybe we need to revisit that yeah, it is like create like three different schedules for for phasing stuff out based on like volatility, volatility, you know, indicators or whatever. It's going to be interesting because, I mean, I never stopped thinking about this stuff anyway. And and Lord knows, you know, college football always gives you some some new variable to to ponder. But this this is the biggest one, the biggest change that we've seen in terms of how we have to go about trying to actually predict games. And, um, you know, clearly I, I knew heading in that I wasn't going to be ready for Colorado and I'm still not ready for Colorado. So speaking of new variables, um, and this isn't a new variable, but was it you that created the term havoc? <laughs> See, I think, I think I I talked to a coach at some point, like 10, 12, 14 years ago. Um, and I think he said something like chaos or something like that. And by the time I started writing about the idea, because it was is basically like a disruption kind of deal, I turned that into havoc. So I think accidentally I tried to steal it from a coach, but then I used a different word and therefore coined a new phrase altogether, which is which is pretty great, really. I mean, you yeah, <laughs> it, it certainly <laughs> caught on. Can we quickly define what Havoc plays are? (laughs) Okay. So Havoc, uh, the way I, I I know coaches will kind of define it differently too, but uh, it's basically tackles for loss, uh, passes, defense. So, you know, interceptions, breakups, and forced fumbles. Like the, the plays where you are genuinely disrupting something the offense is trying to do more or less. Um, And so doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't completely correlate to being good. You can have a very high Havoc rate and also give up a ton of big plays and whatnot, but it is a kind of attempted disruption. Is there something sort of on the offensive side? Because I feel like the, I mean, but can I, Rufus, can I ask one question? Sorry yeah, about the Havoc please. plays themselves. Uh, have you found that those Havoc plays are, they're, they're certainly correlated to winning, but are they 
predict and they're certainly causal to winning but are they predictive going forward so it's kind of like they correlate to something that correlates with with good predictions in that you know if you're disruptive and aggressive that probably means you're also playing very efficient defense and, and allowing very low success rates not always um, but generally those things through two things correlate pretty well and therefore success rate is like the biggest driver of of SP plus more or less. Um, and it's by far the most reliable week to week and year to year measure that I've come up with at least. So kind of, yeah. Havoc probably tells you that's a very efficient defense, but success rate is what really tells you if it's an, an efficient defense. Or do you find it adds stuff once you control for play success rate? Um, I, I'm trying to remember. I, I don't have it directly in the SP plus formula. Um, I just use success rate and, and, you know, all the other stuff. So maybe that's something I should look into, but I don't, I, I haven't, when I was fiddling with it years ago, I didn't necessarily find the need to put it directly in the, into the formula. Okay. I, I kind of like hearing that because I haven't found anything like that, um, okay, good. <laughs> that actually adds, but it's, it's this key talking point, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's a great personality measure too. Like, it, it, it helps to describe how a team, which for my purposes, you know, on the right-hand side is very, very, very useful. But yeah, in terms of they're very aggressive, therefore they're good. That's not necessarily something we can count on. Speaking of personality, do you do anything in terms of matchups? Like this team has an attacking defense, they're blitzing a lot versus a team that has trouble protecting the quarterback or they're a team that's going to have a lot of quick throws or anything like that. Well, so for SP plus, no, uh, but for then, you know, if you're actually trying to figure out what picks or bets to make, then uh, yeah, obviously there are certain, you know, you can kind of typecast certain types of offenses or defenses based on uh, not only the, the efficiency levels, but then, you know, also the explosiveness. Are they a, a very all or nothing team that probably has a lot more range of volatility, that kind of stuff, or, you know, tempo, all these other factors can go into whether you should make a bet, make a pick specifically, but SP plus is just kind of the starting point for all that. So you, you've actually found like you've been able to quantify these things that actually do matter in terms of matchups. I mean, I hope like, you know, basically you just, you hope your bets or your picks are good. And and usually they do better than SP plus as a whole because I picked the right game. So that tells me something, That's... but I don't, but, but, you know, I mean, nothing that would go into a predictive formula just yet. Okay. Interesting. Cause I've, I mean, that's always been a challenge for Kate and I, like we, we know that there are, I mean, matchup factors have to exist, um, but it's very hard to quantitatively yeah, show that it's it's if you have a good rushing offense against a bad rushing defense, maybe the bad rushing defense commits to stop the run, and it you know there's all these other sort of ancillary effects that yep. that become harder to to you know down the line, and so you don't really see these sort of the the simple interactions we would sort of expect. No, from an algorithm perspective, for me, it just it ninety percent of it or whatever percent of it is just you know how free how successful are you from play to play, and when you're successful. How successful are you in terms of the, the the magnitude of those successes? So efficiency and explosiveness. Same kind of way in soccer, by the way. I, I haven't ever gotten where I want to from a soccer uh, model or anything like that. But it's basically like how frequently are you creating shots and how good are those shots? It's, it's just kind of the same. Yeah, maybe that's for any territorial sport in the end. So you talk about the explosiveness and I think the in, in play success is definitely the most stable measure because it's a, yep. you know it's it's being able to do something consistently well tells you a lot about a team but but i mean clearly there's value in, in being explosive but at the same time I, I think kate and i have found that 
there's diminishing marginal returns per yard gained, meaning that like a 90 yard right. touchdown or 90 yard play is, isn't worth twice as much as a 45 yard play is predictively speaking, because yeah. probably the last 50 yards are just running free. Right. So is there, have you found a way to sort of handle that? At well, all? and, and I mean, you have to have made that play from the 10 yard line to get a 90 yard play. Like that's right, exactly. down, down distance and field position all play a huge role in just the potential explosiveness of a play. That's all I know. I've always, the EPA models that are out there um, that are way better than any that I could create in that regard. That's the one, I still like separating my stuff out into success rate and the explosiveness of those successes just because EPA factors in explosions that aren't necessarily as, I mean, obviously if you set it up to be diminishing uh, returns, then then you can get pretty close. But that is, I still like separating those things out because it is, it's so context heavy, figuring out exactly how explosive you are and how explosive you could have been on a given play. Well, I mean, EPA, I think the fundamental issue there is it's, it's completely explanatory. Right. And you're going <laughs> to, you know, a fourth and one play from the opponent's two yard line is going to have a huge, huge right. impact. Yeah. Right. And whereas what we need is like a predictive EPA. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is, it is the first step towards something really good, but you do have to come up with that, you know, what was actually possible versus what you actually generated and it gets really tricky. Speaking of sort of predictive, I guess, and explanatory, um, so, you know, week zero, week one, you have a lot of teams playing cupcakes and they're not, uh, and, and I guess even like aside from just throwing out the sort of late game garbage time stuff, you know, you have teams that are, you know, they're not playing the same game plan they would against, uh, you know, in a game they expect to be close. You know, if you're a 40 point favorite, you're, you're, you can go with, go with second string, um, pretty early on. Is there, and so I guess, how do you handle that in terms of sort of the predictive power of some of these games where, you know, where the team is going to be playing very differently? Yeah, inevitably, SP Plus will overreact to a few of the blowouts. Like if you're projected to win by 38 and you won by 64 or something, then sometimes that's real. Though. That's the problem is sometimes that really does tell you this team is like Oklahoma last weekend. Of course, they were going to blow out Arkansas State. They were up 35 nothing after 18 minutes. Um, and they won 73 nothing with their backups were in and they still kept scoring and they had to you know put in the walk-ons to make it uh, to avoid making it like 91 to nothing at the end so to me and, well and to sp plus they they rose more than colorado did last week or very close to it um that still tells you something now you kind of have to you know, you could turn around and struggle against SMU. And and so they'll go right back down to where they started more or less. But in a lot of cases, it's, I haven't figured out how to, how to only adjust correctly and not overreact to a few games here or there within SP plus it's inevitably going to be kind of scattershot early on, but OU, the fact that they, they're like fifth in SP plus now. Um, and, and after blowing out a team, they were supposed to blow out. I can kind of justify that, even though I'm not going to completely buy in yet. They have to do it against SMU now, too. I think you brought up a really interesting point there on, on, in terms of the depth that shows that they're like their depth yep. is re really good. And, you know, some in interestingly, one variable that years ago I could share this because now there aren't really kickoffs anymore. But <laughs> years ago, if you looked at a team's kickoff coverage, um, that actually was a huge predictor of of like how good they were controlling because for other things backups. because it said something about their depth and physicality, yep. I think, right. It's because these aren't the same guys. These aren't your guys playing regular downs. Generally speaking, it's like, how good are the, you know, they're your blockers and your coverage teams. And yep. so 
like the Alabamas are going to have just better, you know, better athletes there. <laughs> yeah, um, I can see that actually. And that's and that's like the most insightful thing Rufus has ever said on this podcast. I love that. Well, and it I'm was actually, keep... it's, but it's not relevant anymore because there's no. I'm not even. So maybe I'm not even finished, back. Jeff. I'm not even. <laughs> okay, finished. sorry. I'm go get. Go ahead. So the other Start thing is when when we so we experimented with a using actually individual players rather than recruiting class numbers back from Assey Peabody back in 2019, I think it required a lot of, um, I mean, I'll say merging the recruiting stuff from like rivals and 24 seven to different IDs, like sports source analytics. It was, was a huge, huge pain in the ass. Yeah. And we actually had to outsource somebody to like manually do ones that we couldn't <laughs> do with the problem. We had a probabilistic matching algorithm. It was a lot of fun, but we found that I was like, you know, looking at a team's roster and like, you know, waiting the top, you know, the guys we expect to play, um, didn't do much better than, or really any better than, than the way we done it in terms of recruiting classes. And I think the big takeaway there was like the, I guess the, the depth matters and how good right. the guys you're practicing <clears throat> against tells you something, right. Cause it's not always the guys you expect to play that are going to be the ones to play. And so if you have a guy that, if you said, okay, let's like, let's rank this roster based on, I mean, playing time who's playing and you have some two-star recruit that's playing and you have a four-star five-star recruit on the bench i mean that tells you that the two-star recruit actually ended up being out you know outplaying the five-star recruit yeah. to win the job which so yeah, yeah and and now you know like alabama takes uab transfers and all this other stuff so they have these like guys who were low three high two-star guys but are clearly awesome like proved they were awesome and better than that and but then they move up to alabama and it, it gets really tricky to figure out how to, to how to incorporate that recruiting ranking into everything i know 247 is trying with their uh they have the like transfer rankings where they like they re-rank the guys when they enter the portal and i think that helps a little bit but it is it is high, like other than just super generalized alabama has the most blue chippers therefore alabama's got the best depth it's it's hard to get more specific than that well, in Alabama, a lot of them are blue chippers because they're recruited by Alabama in a way. And 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 on the on the message boards, everybody, it's always a conspiracy, like, oh, he got an Alabama offer. Now he's a four-star. Like, yeah, because Alabama offered him. And that's probably predictive in and of itself. But it's true. I mean, it's like you have these scouting services, but you also have Nick Saban in Alabama scouting, right. which has shown to add value, add signal yeah. to things. So you'd be dumb not to use it, even though it's like <laughs> not quote like fair or correct or anything. Right. It's, it's like so for can, NFL, we have a thing where we designate like a quarterback that we have all our quarterback ratings, but if I know that someone is playing because a starter was injured, like he was a backup quarterback, it could be the exact same quarterback. Like we're going to downgrade it because that's what the numbers say to do, but it feels so freaking arbitrary. <laughs> so can we segue a little bit into SPV plus into betting, right? Like how you take that ranking. Cause we talked a little bit about like, you just can't take that straight um, yeah. How predictive is that difference, that pure difference to the point spread? Like, do you have any way, like, how do you think about doing that? Cause like, I look at a game this week, like Mississippi state versus uh, Arizona and Mississippi state is I think favored by like nine and a half or something like that. But if I look at the Delta on um, SB plus, it's closer to uh, I think 12 or 14 or something like that. And so, like, and then with home field and whatnot, like, so how do I think about, you know, those things and like, what's, what's the art there that you're working on? Cause th that's what everyone cares about these days, right? How do you take a ranking system and right. put it into like the play for betting? Yeah. Like 
five years ago, 10 years ago, like you could make money off with SP plus. I mean, it was, it was routinely in the kind of the 52 to 54% range at least. Um, I think one year it maxed out at 55 and a half, but I think that was super lucky because it's the error rates were also higher than they'd ever been. So I think that was, I kind of disregarded that, but basically the books are so much smarter now than they used to be. Um, and the opening lines are so much smarter now than they used to be. I know SP plus has, you know, I've been told indirectly, of course, but SP plus is one of those things that gets kind of taken into account now. And I mean, if it's SP plus versus, you know, injury and context adjusted SP plus, then the original is never going to win. So I, I was like uh, six games under 500 last year. It was worse than that the year before start starting out at 500 this year, which is a bad sign. Cause usually it's like 53 to 55% the first week. Um, Wait, that's picking every game, right? That's picking every game with no adjustments to injury whatsoever. Um, so like average errors, like I'm still hitting my marks as far as where I want to be in terms of median error points per game, stuff like that. But it's just, that it's so you you it, what it I think comes down to is how you do have to start to understand number one you got to figure out how to com compile injury data. I know you know you guys are are, are dabbling in that and and everybody's trying, but I'm gonna plug on a beta because we have a right. that that's something we're doing really really well right now. And and that's if you pull that off well, then that's the best possible because I mean that's figuring out you know who's actually going to play when coaches get more guarded about that every single year. Um, and, and then figuring out what, you know, the, the kind of the drop off and depth levels and things like that, like Alabama's starting quarterback getting hurt versus, you know, Marshall's or whatever, like the difference that could make, that's where you make most of your money. I know I talked to my friend, Buddy Elliott a lot. We worked together at SB nation for years and years and years, and he's really, really good at basically start, you know, taking SP plus and other things into account and then basically saying, okay, but I know this guy's out and I know his backup sucks because he watches every recruit in the country and all this other stuff. Um, and he's able to make individual picks that way. But yeah, it's the days of SP plus even getting a 52% against the spread overall are, are, are done now. Um, and I've kind of had to <laughs> accept that. And it's, it stinks. Cause I mean, I still want to track it because I know people care about it and people want to see it, but it's, it's hard. Now I will say as far as like the Mississippi state example, it's basically a five point difference between spread. Typically I've found that the, the if there's about a three to seven point difference between spread and SP plus, that's the sweet spot because typically any more than that, it means SP plus is missing some context of some sort. Um, either an injury or just specific transfers that the preseason projections aren't taking into account. And this week you see quite a few of them. You see UCF is favored by like, uh, let's see, by 16, 15 and a half over Boise state. The line's like three and a half. Now I, I, I favor UCF in that game because I think they're really good, but early in the season, maybe SP plus just has a perfect read on somebody or more likely it's just missing context and you need to stick to that three to seven range. But is that context really going to be worth 12 points? Plus? That I don't know. Last week was really, was really, really interesting in that SP plus was picking basically every favorite and every under or like 80% of both. Um, and looking back, it basically missed the pick when it picked the favorite and the underdog, it basically had about the same success rate. And when it picked the over and the under is the same. So I don't know what to make of any of that. And I think a lot, one of the, the, the interesting factors for college football this year is they, the, the clock rule change um, where now the clock doesn't stop after first downs, except the last two minutes of both halves. Um, and so in talking to my friend, Bud and other people, I, I kind of just decided to lop off about 5% of scoring to account for that. Um, 
just kind of shrunk the scoring curve a little bit. Is that like seven plays a game, maybe? Yeah, something to that effect. And so, like, I I can't tell if that was right or not. Scoring is about down like that, but the SP Plus point totals have been just wacky all year and, and haven't well all year like week zero and one hasn't been anywhere close in a lot of those things um so it's been really hard to figure out the new scoring curve so to speak i mean i i like your approach there i mean jeff and i were talking about this earlier too where you know i think if if you expect five percent fewer plays i would say five percent less scoring makes sense as a first you know as a general pass five percent fewer scoring and you could say too that um, you know that when you're trying to game out, like if it's a blowout, does that mean the clocks, you know, it's even going to be quicker to the end of the game? And maybe what would have been a 73 point win is now only like a 63 or something like that. And does that account for more of the scoring loss as compared to a normal game? And I don't have all those answers just yet. I do know that scoring is about down about as much as, as projected, um, even though that hasn't done any favors to the win total or to the point total picks. You know what I would love to see is somebody do a deep dive using a video analysis on, on how long the clock actually has like in the past stopped for first downs on yeah. like, cause I think your idea of like, okay, in a blowout they're they're going to restart it more, you know, maybe more <laughs> quickly. Cause it's, it's so inexact. Yeah. It's sometimes, yeah. sometimes yeah. they're just like, you know, the, the operator's like, okay, it's been a long time. I, I like, think the chains aren't, haven't necessarily finished moving yet. And they're, re, they're re, they'll restart it. And yeah. have, have you guys ever run a, run a clock at a sporting event? Uh, high school basketball kind. high school basketball yeah i, I was terrible and, at and, and and but if you know if you do that right this is like it's like ridiculous right like it's a judgment it's like and it, it, imagine so there's two things that i think are really interesting around this modeling of of the actual speed of the game or the rule changes one is will it like the human behavior aspect of it essentially like the the clock timer now that he's in the or she he or she is in the habit of not stopping the clock nearly as much, do you see much more running time than you've seen before in the past? Like even on like out of bounds and things like that, where it's just like, why I'm not even bothered, right? And like, (laughs) what was interesting is I saw a play and I'm wondering if they're getting instructions to now do this. I saw a play, I think in the Oregon State, San Jose State game, where um, a player went out of bounds or there was a situation where a player went out of bounds in a clear time when they were going to be trying to stop the clock. Mm -hmm. And it was a slight stop of forward progress before he went out of bounds. And normally in college, they would for sure have stopped the clock because they're just programmed to stop the clock. But the ref stopped for a second, looked at it, and then decided to run the clock, right? And it was interesting (laughs) because I don't think I've ever really... so. The other thing is is essentially like, will this new rule change just change behavior of humans, meaning like refs, coaches, how they run things, players, and will the impact of it be more than the simplistic way that I think all of us think we should just model it, which is just, you know, lop off 5% plays, 5% right. score, whatever it is, right? And so, which which I think ultimately, and, and you know, we're, we're, we're getting close to like where we got to let Bill get back to his day job, but we could talk about this forever. I think the, one of the interesting things that I'd love to talk to you about at some point that we, it's been kind of a theme for Rufus and I recently is this idea of, you know, when do you get too complicated in an analysis and you kind of lose the value because ultimately your sample sizes shrink or your, your ability to have like power in your analysis shrink. And ultimately you've, you've overcomplicated things. And I think 
as we think about things like the transfer portal, or we think about like, cause I was, I heard your interview with, with Ed Fang talking a little bit about sort of simplicity of the numerator and the denominator and things like that. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, that's, that's great. That's simple. And it's right. And like to Rufus's point around, you know, Rufus, when you were talking about the Oklahoma thing, we were, you were saying like, Oh, that's an indication of, you know, depth. And I was thinking to myself in my feeble mind, like, well, depth would only matter in certain situations, but then your explanation of why depth matters period makes a lot of sense. Right. And so the idea of like aggregate ratings versus like really trying to get, you know, thin, thin slicing and things like that. So that's just like a little babbling, but I'm not sure if that, you know, there's something that, that, that takes you to in terms of the work you do, Bill. Yeah. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm always tinkering, but most of those, that tinkering doesn't actually go into SP plus in the end because it doesn't make anything any better. Uh, best example of that is a few years ago when army was converting every fourth down and um, you know, winning a bunch of games, despite really mediocre, even mediocre efficiency rating, uh, you know, success rates because they would get three yards on first down instead of, you know, the five that you need. Um, and so basically they were, ruthlessly efficient never gave up the ball but they were like 70th in success rate and all and and so i started thinking like you know how can i account for army and navy of the world almost and success plays almost successes so <laughs> what i fiddled with was like okay well what if instead of saying it's a zero one yes it was success or no like if you get three yards on first down that's like 60 percent of a success and so like 0. 0.6 instead of one and making it kind of a relative what that did was it made Army and Navy, uh, it appreciated Army and Navy a lot more. And then the Washington States of the world, Mike Leach, who every single play was either an 11-yard gain or a zero-yard gain because it was incomplete pass, suddenly Washington State and the pass-heavy teams were way, 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 way worse and underrated. Um, and so I, I wasn't going to make one change to fix how it looked at two teams and then blow like 38 other teams and make it worse. And um, it is just kind of tinkering and having a, a, a data, having a setup where you can easily just fiddle and, you know, play with previous years and see if there's any value to a lot of this stuff. It's very, very, it, there's an art to all of it. And and most of that art is unsuccessful, I think. No, I, I, it's when, when we build models like this, algorithm, uh, algorithmic models, you're, you're, there are always going to be outliers that you don't get properly yep. because to do that, as you said, like to, to get those properly, you're going to miss something else. And so. Like I've traditionally been worse at, at the outliers of predicting anything actually for yeah. sports betting, because I mean, I'm like the anti Taleb um, <laughs> because I'm not incentivized to be like Taleb. I don't get the huge payout, like the career, right. you know, I'm not going to, if I, if I get this extreme game, right. It's not like I, you know, win, you know, a million units or something, but <laughs> I thought Nate Silver was the anti Taleb, but I guess maybe you, you are. So, Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we'd love to have you on again. Love your work. Uh, if you want to see it, it's at ESPN, on ESPN and all over the place and inventor of SP+. Plus. So uh, honored to have you on. Oh, hey, Rufus. Oh, I, I do have now. one late question. Is there is there any sort of rivalry <laughs> like between S and, SP+, Plus and FPI? In the ESPN headquarters. <laughs> well, it was kind of, I, I did kind of feel bad because basically, you know, we have an entire analytics department and then, you know, just to kind of, um, you know, to amuse me, basically they, they hired me to write, but then I'm like, I, I got to put my ratings somewhere. And so like, okay, we'll just cram them onto the, the front page of the site and everything. I felt bad. Like, 
you know, it was going to cause some sort of fracturous relationship or whatever, but I, I use the SIG data greatly. I put FPI in my Friday columns as well. Like I'm a, I'm a teammate. Um, and, and I've always got along with the SIG people. So that was, that it was kind of, I, I did figure it was kind of awkward for them though. Like, oh, this guy's going to come in and use his own numbers. Awesome. We, we, we needed like an end of year of evaluation. Although maybe that's not good for, for the, yeah, why don't right. we do it, Rufus? That's right. We, we can do, don't we can, tell me we can do an end of season evaluation. Yeah. We, you know, we can do a little work. We do that every <laughs> once in a while. I mean, there, there is a site that actually evaluates all the models Um, for, I'm trying to remember what the site is. And I think it's prediction tracker. And I always forget yeah. to actually uh set, put my stuff and send it their way. So my stuff's not on there. You gotta, you gotta find my Twitter feed and my Google sheets for that. I literally say with Massey Peabody, I've looked back, I've been like, I wonder how we stack up. And so I actually have to like do like run that stuff myself and then actually compare. Yeah. It's, it always does favorably like, but that's after the fact. And so that just, I don't ever try to point that out. Cause then it just looks like I'm, I only said something cause it was good or whatever. And it's really just me being lazy. It's good to know for your own confidence though. <laughs> that's right. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we'd love to have you on again. Love your work. Uh, if you want to see it, it's at ESPN, on ESPN and all over the place and inventor of SP+. Plus. So uh, we'll let you go and good luck this week. Thank you. So that was our interview with Bill Connolly from ESPN. That was fun and awesome. And I enjoyed Rufus. I've told Rufus he needs to get into these interviews more and be his real self because what normally happens is when we... Uh, get done with one of these interviews, we stop the recording and then Rufus just asks all these great questions and comes out of his shell. And I'm like, why didn't we record that? And he's like, well, you got to let me talk. And so I tried to let him talk <laughs> and he did a good job. So what were, what were your impressions of that interview? I thought it was great. I thought it was, uh, um, I mean, I, I think there's a lot that, that I can relate to via the Massey Peabody stuff. And so I, I can kind of commiserate with some of the the struggles in modeling a team like a Colorado or some of these outliers and, and dealing with the transfer portal. But I actually, um, what you said about um, simplicity actually kind of rang true to me. And that's something that I've, that I've been trying to, um, oh, I've been trying to simplify some of my golf stuff actually. And I have this monthly sort of, study group call with uh with your friend um will our friend will i should say and former former uh guest on the podcast and we've we're both kind of on this sort of same journey with our golf modeling trying to trying to simplify some things that we feel like have gotten kind of overly complex so what is the give us a tidbit of something just some some kernel some relevant piece of information well i mean I'd say it's less about the information and more about the process. Okay. So I want, I I'm trying to make things better organized so that I can iterate and, you know, iterate on things a lot more easily. And I'm trying okay. to simplify that process. And I don't know there's, there's, there's nothing I can really say that's <laughs> any real insight to be honest. Classic. Uh, okay. Um, do you have any picks for this week? We, we gotta I, I get don't. people we, picks. Well, we haven't produced Massey Peabody college football yet. Um, we're largely because of the transfer stuff. So rather than we didn't want to put out anything, um, I think that as Bill said, it, it's very hard now with these sort of wholesale changes to rosters and doing kind of our old methodology, um, is going to break down there. And so, 
I, I will eventually get to that. I've just had a lot on my plate. And we we have produced NFL Massey Peabody ratings. I've made no changes since to the method to the model or anything like that. But um, as Bill said, I mean, it's you know something he mentioned that S and P Plus is is good on its own, but the real value is when you use that as sort of a starting point and you can add context to it, like as he said about his friend and our friend Bud Elliott, and so. Um, I, I don't expect my NFL using Massey Peabody to just straight up win like that, just based on the, the without any sort of additional context, but you got to give an NFL pick then let's give an NFL pick. Do you have any, you can do something off Massey Peabody for an NFL pick, right? I haven't even see the, the funny thing is I haven't even actually pulled, pulled it into projected spreads, but I could tell you that the teams that I'm too high on and will definitely like who, who, who do the Rams and the Bucks play this week? The Rams and the Bucks. Uh, let's see. I think the Bucks could be actually bet. I think I actually think that Baker I'm high on the Bucks. I think Baker is going to have a good year. Is that weird? No, I agree. agree? I, I kind of think. Yeah. That, I, I agree. I think the Bucks are not as bad as people think. In fact, this is why Massey Peabody is probably wrong. But we have them as a slightly above average team. So you like you like them this week getting six over against Minnesota then. We probably would, yes, for sure. Do you want that to be your pick? Yes, I'll make that my pick. I like that pick, actually. Um, I'm going to take the Jets plus the two and a half against the Bills on Monday night. And my theory behind this is that I think that this Jets defense is going to be kind of sneaky, sneaky good because last year they were they're good and they only created 16 turn they only had 16 turnovers. So it's not a lot for a defense that had that many sacks. And so I think they will end up turning the ball over a bit more and they will likely, Oh, you're shaking your head at me. So I think no, they I, I like the logic. I like the turnover logic here. Yeah. So I'll take the jets plus the two and a half is my pick. I was 0 okay. and five on the Tony Kornheiser show, which is hard to do, but yet was somehow able to do it. But well, why is it I, hard to I, do? Always... Are you using stale lines? What's that? No, kidding. I'm just kidding. Lines with this. it's just, it's hard to go on five period. I guess it's not that hard. We could figure it out, but I've gone 0 and 5 on that show before, so it's okay. And I, I've you've also gone five I've, now. Knock on wood, always ended up plus on that show, and usually I think plus significant amounts. Like I think I've hit like between 55 to 60 percent on that show. Just do really betting into like late week NFL line. So lucky, probably more well, than anything. Don't quit your day job. Well, actually, no, you already did. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I'm trying to find another day job at some point. So we now welcome in Petra Bakasova to the Bet the Process podcast. Petra, welcome. Um, it's like nice for us to have someone that's really smart finally on the podcast. So I think getting an applied math, uh, has some, someone that has an applied math and then like an advanced degree from UChicago would really fit into that category. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you got into this world of finance, especially like specifically, I mean, I think applied math is just this awesome field now that um, you can do so much from. And so as you thought about what you did with an applied math background, how did you think about finance and and, and broadly as the place to go? Sure. Um, hi, Jeff. Hi, Rufus. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I guess my background and how I ended up in finance, I was always good at math. And I never wanted to be a math teacher. So that took me a, a little 
bit to figure out like what do you do when you're good at math and you don't particularly want to be in a classroom all day long and then I realized there's a lot of applications to math and, and one of them being finance and econ and that's where I sort of like found my passion I was always really excited about econ and uh, obviously University of Chicago had a really strong financial math program so I joined that and then if you graduate with a degree in financial math in Chicago, there's a really good chance one of the Chicago trading firms will sweep you up and, and you'll get a job there. So I sort of just follow the path of everybody else from the program. And then two trading firms later, I ended up working with Blair and, and, and here I am. As someone, Blair, that's kind of like a little bit of the opposite of you, right? He's not necessarily an academic by by nature, right? And he had a lot of practical knowledge. What do you gain most from working with him? Or what do you, what do you think that the yin and yang of working together is? Yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't, you know, sell Blair short. I don't know if people know this, but he was a trained math teacher at, at one of, you know, an earlier point in his life. So he is pretty, you know, math savvy. Uh, but it's it's fascinating to work with him and to like really appreciate just how quick he is with you know understanding all the underlying math and being able to like distill somewhat complicated models into really simple concepts and and that's what I appreciate. You get a lot of math PhDs and they can write beautiful papers on crazy complicated models and then when it comes to, you know, translating what they see in the market, they're, they're lost. And, and Blair's like the opposite of that. That actually segues into a good question, which is ultimately, it looks like a lot of the work that you did would have fallen into the category of research. And then you actually need to go implement that. So how describe the process of how research becomes actual, you know, models and, and strategies that you are, you know, leveraging millions, billions of dollars on. Absolutely. So, you know, to piggyback a little bit on Blair's earlier interview, which I highly recommend everybody goes and listens to, uh, we scour all the academic work. Uh, so he's probably spending hours every day on Google Scholar looking for any new research related to predicting the market, predicting options return, equity returns, anything that might be relevant to us. And then, uh, you know, that's sort of the starting point. We see something that has a compelling story that makes sense. Uh, and then then we sort of, you know, start applying multiple checks. Uh, so just because somebody writes an academic paper and they have a cool story about why an indicator should work, that doesn't mean that it's going to the model tomorrow and we're trading it tomorrow. Uh, there's a really well-known problem in academia and in finance in particular, uh, which is the replicate, it's, it's known as the replication crisis. There was even a Financial Times article back in 2021 about the hidden replication crisis in finance. And basically what is a well-known problem is that roughly half of all academic articles published either cannot be replicated or they can be replicated, but the results only hold in that specific sample that the authors choose. So basically kind of step one, when we see something good, we don't take it for granted. We try to replicate it and we try to replicate it on a different time sample. So that's kind of the first sanity check. And if the results still hold outside of the original sample, that's a good sign. And that's sort of like where the real model building work begins. 
Well, Petra, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Uh, huge parallels. And I can see Rufus's wheels turning on ideas. <laughs> and I feel like he's going to want to come do a you know, six-month internship at Hall Tactical to learn some new techniques and some new ways of approaching things. So thanks, Petra. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Rufus. Awesome. Are we excited for NFL? We're excited for NFL, right? Yeah, you know, I will be more excited. excited. You, you seem like overwhelmed about football right now, so you're not excited about it. I have a lot of projects I'm working on that are football related too, but just it, it's less of just sides and totals. Football season, I think, kind of snuck up on everyone this year for some reason, and with all the rule changes in college, and then um, yeah, I think it snuck up on people. I've never been less prepared for football season ever. You've never, yeah. Fewer prepared. Okay, thanks everyone. Uh, we'll talk to you guys all again next week. Analytically driven, media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are put to end just running off a of leaded. None of it's organic. It all sounds synthetic. That's why I fucks with Jeff Ma and his dog Rufus. No locks of the year. They just tell you what their truth is. Maybe make your pockets fatter as the bookies get thinner. Give the information turn and lose the betters into winners. Yeah. Sam Hahn, Reppin' Ruckers, Jeff Ma, Rufus Peabody, crunching all the numbers, Massey Peabody rankings, we're looking for the edge, analytically driven, crunching all the numbers.